Hello, and welcome to the Burning Castle podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Rinsberg. Each episode, I speak with a changemaker learning to unlock the creative potential of a world caught in chaos. These are the artists, actors, performers, musicians, designers, thinkers, entrepreneurs, filmmakers, activists, chefs, and countless others creating new paths amid crumbling institutions. You can follow us on Twitter at Burning Castle and on Instagram at Burning Castle Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Burning Castle Podcast. This is your host, Ashley Rinsberg. Today, I speak with Grammy-nominated country and Americana singer-songwriter Tom Yutz. Tom is a German immigrant to the United States who has spent most of his life as an artist in the American South, where he's developed his own kind of sound, his own approach to music, and I think most importantly, to collaboration. He's worked with a host of celebrated country and bluegrass singers, a lot of whom we speak about in the episode. But what really strikes me about Tom is his approach to what you could call the spirituality of creativity. As Tom and I discuss on the episode, he is a huge fan of walking. He starts his morning with, I think it was at least an hour walk every single day. And that is something to which he attributes a lot of, not just his success, but his ability to tap those deep creative wells from which great songwriting and singing and art and innovation of all kinds comes from. So have a listen and check out Tom's music. He's got a number of solo and collaborative albums. He's also a producer of a number of albums. And spread the word about what Tom is doing, not just in his music, but even more importantly, in his approach to creativity. So Tom Utes, thank you so much for being here on the Burning Castle podcast. I, I want us to start out by saying something that's really, to me, significant, which is that you are a, a Grammy-nominated singer-songwriter. You've got, if, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but you've got four solo albums six collaborative albums, including an album from this year. Um, Shirley, we Shirley will be singing and you have produced many more albums with other people, other performers. And to me, that says something really profound, which is you're a working artist. You're the guy doing the thing that so many people dream of doing. And I want to understand what's it like for you to be in that position? What does it feel like? And <clears throat> what does your day look like on account of this role that you're playing? Okay. Well, my day uh, looks like this. I typically get up between five and six, six thirty, something like that. And then I try to go outside as soon as possible. We live uh, about 30 minutes east of Nashville, Tennessee, uh, on a small peninsula in a, in a, big lake called Percy Priest Lake. That's a man-made lake that was made in the 60s. So we can, uh, this this is somewhat um, unusual for American living. We can just walk outside the door and start walking and be in nature. Mm. And so that's wow. the first thing that I do in the morning. I walk. Um, I have sort of a six mile 
minimum that I want to do every day. Um, mm. And that just helps me to clear my head and to be by myself. Or if my wife is coming with me, it's a, it's a good time for us to talk and just get that's the a, day started. That's a long walk. I mean, duration in just in terms of uh, well over an hour, I would imagine. Yeah, a little over an hour. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But once you, okay. I mean, it's it's not strenuous or anything. It's yeah. just a good. It's just a good way to to get your day started. And then mm-hmm. I take care of my correspondence, my email stuff. Then uh, we typically have breakfast together, and we both start work. And my wife is working from home. I work from home for the most part. And you know, uh, it's uh, pe- people. Perce- I have people perceive me as as this workhorse type of personality, but I, I don't necessarily see that myself so much. I hardly ever work longer than six o'clock in the evening. I just, maybe I'm, I plan well, um, or I could, I think once I dedicate to doing something, I probably have a somewhat clear idea what I'm going to do. And then it's just a matter of executing it correctly. And I think being by myself in the morning helps with that. I can organize my thoughts and how am I going to approach this? How am I going to approach this? And some of this was probably born out of necessity. When I moved here in 2003 to Nashville, I I knew some people, but it's not like I had connections in terms of work or studio stuff or whatever. So I felt to some degree that I had to make stuff happen. And mm-hmm. that became the role that I, that I'm, that became my role. You know, I'm the facilitator. I'm the guy who comes up with the idea for a project. I'm the guy, I feel like I'm often the guy who pushes a little more than other people. That's what it feels like to me, but I like it too. I enjoy it. You know, I, you know, I think it's something that people miss and it's a really important point, which is that if you are working in in anything but in something that's that is certainly the arts and culture and even in entrepreneurial spheres of course you are you get out of it what you put into it and i don't mean in terms of inner rewards i mean in terms of action activity energy um all, all the stuff that you need to get something moving and keep it in motion what goes in comes out and i think people have this tendency to just wait for something to happen, wait for someone to say yes and give them permission, but it, it doesn't really work like that. And it, it, that obviously sounds like your experience as well. No, you're you're a hundred percent right. I think uh, first of all, you can't wait wait for anybody else to give you permission. You have to you'd have to just forge ahead and do what you think you you want to do. And also, I think one of the common misperceptions is that creativity is based on inspiration only, and it's really not. Right. Um, you can develop habits to find to to go towards inspiration and not always just be in some kind of waiting mode. The muse does not flow through the window and then you write your masterpiece. That's just a myth. It's a, it's a, right. it's a, it's a convenient myth because it gives a lot of, it, it's it, because it's a, it's a, it's a nice excuse for not yeah. doing much, but yeah. you know, as a, as a writer and as a producer and an instrumentalist, I mean, all these crafts need to be practiced not just you don't just have to practice the violin to be able to play a, a violin concerto you also have to practice writing and practice create being creative and you know so to me it's all it's fun i i it's i'd like to keep an an um an element of playfulness involved is is important to me you know like and to i think you put this really well 
giving yourself permission to do that is very important. Most people go like, mm -hmm. or most people are just afraid to sit down and go like, well, what if my song doesn't turn out perfect? Or what if my painting mm -hmm. is not perfect? It's like, well, first of all, show me perfection. What's perfect? I don't know. I mean, Mozart probably would have said that none of his pieces were perfect. He probably thought they right. were good, but um, so it's that. And I've always, I feel like I've always had that as a child too. I was a creative kid and I just carried that with me, you know, and it's, but it's that, that urge to be creative is what drive, still drives me. I think there's also something in your, um, your, your chosen genre of music with, you know, which is bluegrass. Um, I, I, if, if I'm right about that, I'm not a hundred percent unaware. I had a great conversation on this podcast with, um, uh, Kyle Coronas of saving country music. And we, he was really trying to walk me through the country music universe. So I understand the shades of it. So I'm paying attention more, but I, I know you won the, the, um, you were nominated, I'm sorry for, for the Grammy in, uh, bluegrass, best bluegrass album, but your music might be beyond that. So maybe just give us a little sense of, of the context. Yeah. Um, first of all, um, well, bluegrass is a very distinct musical style and it, it really, the, the way we, we think about it today, the instrumentation and all that only started in 1944, 1945. So it's a relatively young genre, but the origins of it go back hundreds of years to Scotland and Ireland. And, um, I don't perceive myself 100% as a bluegrass artist. I didn't grow up mm -hmm. in that environment. Um, mm. But it's it's music that I love for many different reasons. But I I also think that it's obviously it's important to to push to expand the boundaries of the genre a little bit. And a lot of people are doing that by make by playing very progressive versions of that music. People like you know, if you think about people like Bela Fleck or younger generation, people like Sarah mm -hmm. Hall who are doing that. But mm -hmm. My approach is a little differently. I, I, I try to incorporate the older versions of that and the origins of it that are in, that to some degree are in old time country music. I try to bring that in. And so, but you can do something different by doing something new, but you can also do something different by doing something that's a little older. And I think that right. helped with that Grammy nomination, but I don't necessarily think myself of a bluegrass songwriter or a bluegrass mm. artist. It's more, you know, American, this American distinctly form, distinct forms of American music are all interconnected at some point, you know, um, the blues, country music, uh, folk music. If you're talking about folk music in the sense of uh, the music that the Scotch, the Scots Irish brought over, all that stuff is, is interrelated. And that's, that's the interesting part about American music, you know, um, yeah. The, go ahead. Yeah, and, and and I think there's also a really a deeper point there as well, which is that um, America, as a country founded in a concept of liberty and independence, which was a radical idea at that time, had gave birth to forms of music that are really independent-minded. You know, I feel like the the country scene, at, at least the you know, from my understanding, in bluegrass and different kinds of country, you've got an independent spirit and an independent, um, a, a way to do the music and to make the music a little bit more independently than some of the stuff that we're seeing in broader pop culture and pop music. Um, and I think when I look at your, your, uh, your work, your, and your, your discography and to see how much you're able to produce and, and how you're not waiting long 
gaps in time to do the next thing, again, that's about not having to ask someone permission, I imagine. You can take that spirit of independence, get together with two or three or four other people in around you or that you know from the, the field that you're in and just do it, do the thing. Yeah, I mean, isn't that part? I, I think you're you're very right that this is part of the American spirit, and that's part what, in part, what attracted me to move to this country from Central Europe. It seems like there's too much conceptualizing going on there, and to for my taste, at least, there was. And here, people just go, "Sure, you got a, you got an idea, go ahead and do it." And where I was born in Germany, people would go like, "Well, that's not probably not going to work." And, you know, and here it's just like, well, give it, give it a whirl. Good for you. Right. You know, that's the American attitude. And if you look at the origins of bluegrass music, people like Bill Monroe and Flatt and Scruggs and the Stanley brothers and Jimmy Martin, they were, and the Osborne brothers, they were, um, they were innovators. You know, they, Bill Monroe was, was really mad when he thought that people were, were copying his music because hmm. he came up with this thing by himself, influenced by a black guitar player and then by the, by the fiddle playing of his uncle. And he put those things together. He wanted to have the blues in his music and, and the, the, the Scots-Irish influence and all of that. So I think being innovative is built into the origin of this music. And obviously because of the, the racial diversity in the United States and people living so close together and the concept of you know cultural appropriation that it's okay for me to play blues and it's okay for uh, a black guy to write an opera, all of that. I mean, people are, you know, this is, this is the interesting part about America. This is where literally the rubber meets the road and, and that, that friction, you know, a, a wheel is not going to roll if there's not a road to give some resistance. And, and I think culturally that still works well in America, although a lot of things don't work well in America anymore, mm-hmm. but or at least at the moment, but that part still works. And the, the, the growing awareness for those forms of music, especially among young people, is amazing. And the, um, the number of young people that are studying this music and are incredible instrumentalists is, has inspired a, um, certain university programs that, that focus on that and, and come, come to it from, a, from an academic uh, viewpoint. And all that is incredibly exciting to me. Yeah, and it's, you know, this spreading, I, I know we've got <clears throat> here in Israel, a pretty well-known band that broke out four, five, six years ago that is really quite blue, bluegrassy and folk, folk, American folk in, you know, singing in English, and they're in, in Israel. And I think that's probably something, you know, Kyle, um, Kyle from Saving Country Music talked a lot about that, that you've got this all around the world, people have embraced this form of music that is that is, you know, at least partially originated from America. It's got deeper roots, but um, I think that's quite an interesting thing because people really do take up the spirit of freedom. That, that's something that is really universal. Everybody understands that. And it's not to say it's uniquely American. It's, of course it's not, but America has, as you, as you put your finger on, America has understood something about it that uniquely applies to contemporary life. So, you know, I, going back to your, your point about, coming from Germany and um, being, you know, in an outsider who maybe sort of became an insider in the U S how had, how did that affect your journey as an artist and a songwriter and a musician? Um, what do you still feel a bit like an outsider looking in, or do you feel like you are so within the culture in the U S that you are able to now look from the U S out or both? I'd say both. I, 
I think within the community of people that I'm collaborating with, they don't view me as an outsider anymore. I think in the broader context, some people might still do that. But that's a reality when you move to a different country that you're never going to 100% get rid of. And the question is also if you if you want to get rid of it all the way. I mean, sure, I could take acting or I could take classes with an actor and lose the last 10% of my German accent and all that. And if I had more time to do that, I might I might want to do that just as an experiment. But you know, you still you still bring your biography with you, even if it's if it's in your if it's in your subconscious or in your value system or in your uh, in the history that you've inherited for better or worse. In my case, and um, but for the most part, America is incredibly um, welcoming, and America always likes to celebrate the success of the outsider. As not so much in a, in if it's at least if it's somebody who's from well let, let's stop there I think America the, the average American likes to celebrate the underdog yeah I think that's true and I, I do think it's a good point about celebrating the success of the outsider and I do think there's probably a caveat there but I think of course we, yeah. we don't need to necessarily explore but that I, on this podcast but no I, let me let me ask to ask one more thing that I think you sure. made an excellent point you know, the concept of freedom and as it's expressed in this music is also comes from the fact that you can put five people with guitar, banjo, mandolin, upright bass and a dobro or a fiddle in a room and it's perfect. There's nothing else you need mm. to do to that. It mixes itself. That's the perfect sound for that music. Everything else when you're trying to recreate that in the studio is somewhat of a Zen effort because you're trying to make, you're trying to catch something that's already perfect. And how are you going to make that more perfect instead by by any other means than leaving it alone. Mm-hmm. And and I think people all over the world are picking up on that concept. It's such a musician friendly thing that you can you don't need a PA, you don't need microphones, you don't need a tr- van, you just get together and play and it's perfect. And and people love that spirit of um yeah it, there's a I think that's the point that I'm trying to make. Yeah. yeah, well, I think what the reason people love it so much is because you're able to take the power of creativity for yourself without having someone else hand it to you. Right. And you're able to get your four guys together. If you can get past that hurdle, which I think most of us can if we want to, then you can make the music that you want. And I think that, you know, that's something I've I've been talking about on this podcast with other musicians, Kate Shutt and with Mark Domai, who's a platinum selling um, uh, artist in France and soon to be soon coming up is Coleman Hughes, who's a hip hop artist, um, is that these people are understanding and they all come from different backgrounds musically and also with with regard to the music industry. Domai, Mark Domai of Cocoon was within the French music industry for 25 years until he, he suddenly wasn't. His record label collapsed and he got the rights back to his music and he started doing it on his own because he could. Um, in Kate Shutt's case is a bit of a different story, also an interesting story. But the point here is that people are starting to understand the power of independence and the capability to be independent today, which is probably it's been in a very, very long time. Um, and I think that's something that we're seeing really comes back to something, again, that is core to country music, core. And just as you put it, if you have those four or five players and, and instruments together in a room, you're complete. And that wasn't, that's not the case with many kinds of music, but I think that is something quite unique. 
Yeah, I mean, that's where the digital age is sort of coming full circle with the itinerant uh, musician of the 16th and 17th century who can right. pack pack up his instrument and go from castle to castle and play. And today you can, whether you're a hip hop artist or a bluegrass musician, if you have a basic recording setup, you can make your music and a couple hours later, it can be out there and it can be, right. you have an audience. And if you talk, if you think about it in terms of country music in the, in the forties and fifties or sixties, when artists like Loretta Lynn were recording, I mean, they literally were in the studio in the morning and in the afternoon, they had a test pressing and they were in the car going from radio station to radio station promoting the songs. And we're doing right. that again today. And it's a completely single driven market, which is what it was right. then. Right. So, you know, it's like, going forward going backward at the same time and obviously yeah. now i'm you know we have this conceived level playing field which i think philosophically is a good thing it's but it's not always a good thing for the quality of the music necessarily but that's again that's another conversation but i think it's a really it's a really exciting time for people who don't want to work with a label for people who want like me who want to put out a lot of music uh and it's relatively quick succession, although I, I do work with a small label, but the operative word here is that it's a small label that is willing and, and capable of making quick decisions and not a big machine that, that works at pleasure speed. Right. And I think for people to understand that there is a choice that lies there, that's an important choice, which is a choice between having um, some sort of control over, over the process, not total, but partial at least, and having things in maybe a more suitable proportion because it gives you other things. It gives you other abilities, meaning speed or creative uh, freedom that you, you won't have with a corporate machine. You just can't. And people are resentful of that fact sometimes, but it doesn't change the fact that that is a corporation that has a share price to protect. It's doing fiduciary duties that have nothing to do with art or music or even the fans um, and definitely not the artist. So it's a choice that you make because often I think people feel victimized by the industry because they can't get in or they've been shut out, et cetera. But it's really not a, it's not a, a, an issue of victimhood. It's an issue of making a decision there. Um, and I think that's something that people, when they open their eyes to that, they're able to reconceive of their place within that field. They, they don't have to be within the industry to succeed. Yes. 100%. I think that's, that's all so good and and correct what you're saying there i i see some of that with i i teach a couple hours a week at a university here in nashville in the song in the songwriting program and i see students that have you know get like 30 million views on tiktok within two weeks and then have offers from every major label on music row and they're 18 or 19 years old and they're obviously on top of the world about it and i'm trying to say a little bit of caution, not because those people are evil, those labels are evil, but you're going to be a part of a big machine, literally. And it's they're not going to hand you 20,000 bucks and go go shopping and then we'll, we'll call you back when we need you. You're going to work like crazy for that machine and you're not necessarily going to be reimbursed or at, for it or asked whether this is what you want to do. And so you're very right that, um, or correct, that at this point in the in the in the music industry, you make those decisions, whether you want to be a part of that or not. Obviously I'm 52 years old. Nobody's going to sign me to any major label. And that's, that's totally cool. But what I'm doing is much more suitable to my, the way I want to express myself and to my, my level of productivity. So I, I think it's a great point that it's all based on decisions. Everything is in, has to be intentional because there's so many options at the moment or in this world that if you, 
um, you have to be very clear about what you what you expect from yourself. Yeah, it's an important word. The word you just used, intentional. It's kind of gets thrown around a lot today, but it it really is the core of everything. I think people miss that. It, without intentionality, nothing will work. And with a lot of it, it will absolutely work guaranteed, um, at least in some fashion. It'll work by by what you put into it and what you desire out of it. But, you know, I want to turn to a, a bit of a different um, topic, which is about the process itself. You, you, I've read an essay that you wrote about songwriting. And in it, you use, uh, you write that in a nutshell, my job as a songwriter is to pay attention. And I, you know, that jumped out at me right away. And what it makes me wonder is to pay attention to what and how to pay attention and exactly what that does to, to be paying attention so much and, and so uh, right. diligently. Well, uh, to me, it starts with another thing that I say in that essay is that a lot of ideas to me start with images and the, the, process of paying attention as a songwriter with me starts and with me starts with an image as well I, I literally visualize a part of my brain on the right side and the back of my brain as a part that constantly pays attention to what's going on around me whether I'm having a conversation whether I'm walking whether I'm watching TV whether I'm reading a book um, it's it's always on and it's a stream of it's it's the opposite of stream of consciousness. You're not letting everything out, but you're taking mm. everything in. And it's it. I think they work together. I think both practices work together. So I, that's that's what I mean by paying attention. Um, I'm not. I don't think can about. We, can we can we pause there? I want to. I just want to mm -hmm. emphasize that a little bit more. So that part of you that is walking around constantly paying attention, it's almost it's in a state of receptivity, right? It's not the yes. blabber because we all have the blabber, a lot of blabber. It's hard to quiet it. You're not, it's not, that's not what you're talking about. You're talking no. about something that enables you to, to be a little bit quiet and a little bit still so that you're seeing what's, what it is happening around you and, and being sensitive to it. Yes. It's, it's, it's not the blabber it's filtered. Um, it's, there's a great practice that, that's recommended in a book called The Artist's Way, where you write three mm. pages of longhand yeah. stream Julia of consciousness. Mm -hmm. yeah. you, you do that first thing in the morning, and over a period of half a year or a year, you will, you will realize how much more structured your stream of consciousness becomes. And I think doing that and practicing that works the other way around, too. What comes in becomes filtered, too. But it's not mm. by an editorial process. It's just it happens that way. It's like, yeah. it's like any other practice. If you, if somebody's a great yoga practitioner, it's still probably difficult to do this, but it's also not difficult at the same time. And it's, mm -hmm. and so that's how I think about it. Um, Tom T. Hall, who's one of the greatest songwriters ever, and who is a, as a dear friend said, uh, songwriters are bad songwriters. People are good songwriters. So when you, if you sit down and with a blank and have a blank piece of paper in front of you and a guitar and go like, I'm a songwriter and I have to write my masterpiece now, I think you're totally doomed. <laughs> right. You know, you, if you walk around and you talk to your neighbor across the street and he says something that gets your attention or you, you know, uh, that's, that's where the stuff comes from. Those are the images right. that, that I want to write about. I think too many songwriters from my taste write about their internal life. And mm -hmm. that's cool, but 
um, if that's not done in a in a way that's universally understandable, what's the value of that? Right. Uh, and so, to me, I try to come to it from a different angle, and. Uh, write about the things that are outside of me. I'm always going to be in it because it's my way of my perception of these things. So, of course, there are songwriters who would probably accuse me of not being brave enough to write about my inner world or this or that. But mm -hmm. I don't. I don't fully accept that. I also think that there's a part of us that does not need to be expressed in the written word. And again, mm -hmm. Tom, Tom T. Hall said uh, in your songs give some of what you know away, but not all of what you know. Mm, and that's amazing. also, it makes for a better song because it leaves something up for the interpretation of the listener. And so in that sense, I don't, I resent a little bit the idea that songwriting is this, this psychotherapy uh, thing. I also don't think that we're, that we're necessarily equipped or, or educated enough as songwriters to approach it like that in workshops and things like that. So that's a little bit of how I, how paying attention uh, ties in. Like I'm just looking out the window and there's a guy walking by with a dog who I see every, I've seen him for 16 years every morning. And it's still interesting, you know, like paying attention for me, for instance, my wife and I play this game and we're walking that we, before we can see who it is, we try to figure out who it is by the way they walk. Mm. And it's really interesting. After a while you go like, oh yeah, that's, that's um, Maria Small. And mm -hmm. it's, it's just, you can train all of those things. To me, they, they all find their way into songwriting. And I think that's also, um, you know, some of it is in the way, uh, in a setting that you're in, which sounds a little bit more connected to nature where you have space and stillness and time to be able to differentiate between things. In the yes. blur of a city, it can be just too much to, you, you just end up rushed, pulled along by the throng. Um, which I also think is interesting. And it's something to, you know, you'd mentioned Julia Cameron's book, The, the Artist's Way. And one thing she recommends is what you had talked about, which is the page writing every morning, longhand, uh, three pages or two pages, whatever it is. And then the other thing is the artist date, where she's saying once a week, you go and do something for you as, as the artist, as the creator that respects that moment and that time. Um, is that something you also do? You Do you do an artist date? Well, I think uh, walking in the morning every day here in nature does that for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, the other thing in the essay that jumped out is um, the sentence, the TV in our house stays off pretty much all the time. And mm -hmm. I think that it's such a counterpoint to the rest of the culture because we are a Netflix culture. We, what gets the conversation warmed up between people is like, did you see the latest episode of this or that? And what it does to us is it kind of cannibalizes our perspective because you're lost in some other perspective that is fictional and it blots out your own perspective as a human being. And exactly what you were talking about before, which is being in that state of receptivity is being in a state of, of really purified or filtered perspective. And TV shuts that down as creative and great as it can be. Um, it really obliterates it. Is that why the TV is not on it, I imagine, or, or are there other reasons? No, it's exactly that. I don't want to constantly have somebody talking at me. Um, we've just recently updated our TV so we have the capacity to stream, but we're using it in a way that we go like, um, I've heard something about Buster Keaton and I'm really interested in that. Let's watch a documentary about Buster Keaton, but we're not watching right. three or four a day and probably right. not even three or four a week. We might watch 
one a week. And then typically what we'll do is we'll go back and watch it one more time. So we don't miss the subtleties. But one of the saddest things to me is to walk around or drive through Nashville or something, or you see it more when you're walking and it's like seven or eight in the morning and you see that the TV is on in a house. It's like, what, what kind of yeah, life is that? You know, yeah. I mean, sure. I understand if you want to watch the news or see what the weather's like, but to me, it indicates that it's going to stay on the whole day. And it just becomes this, this, this other reality that's constantly. Yeah, I think it's you. for people, a balm for loneliness. They, they oh, wake sure. up and they're, they're lonely and they put the TV on and you have a false friend there. You know, it's a, a fair weather friend, but it's not real. It's it's just eating you. <laughs> well, and it permeates that loneliness. You know, it, it doubles up on it really, I and mean, right. it doesn't make anything better. Um, but also, I'm I'm not down on TV. I think I, I actually write quite a bit of music for TV and movie, and that's become a, a good uh, source of income to facilitate some other things. Um, so I I don't try to to be down on the medium. I think at the moment there's actually really really cool stuff going on. Um, like my wife and I really enjoyed watching the first three episodes of the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, just because it was the production values were so incredible Amazing. the casting yeah. and the yeah. writing and f about a topic that we typically wouldn't, if somebody would tell me, well, here's a stand-up comedian, female stand-up comedian in the late fifties. That's watched right. 18 episodes of that. Right. Like, no, I don't think so. <laughs> but yeah. In Jewish New York. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But it, a, was a, it was great. Yeah. It, it is great. And I think it's like, any other tool or technology, it's how you use it. And that what you were saying, I think people often ask me, you know, I wrote, I re wrote recently a book about the New York Times and about the influence of journalism and media on our society. And people ask, ask me, what's the solution? Like if they're selling us a corrupt product, my answer is to flip your modality from browse to search. Go stop just passively consuming this stuff with your mouth open, like you're, like you're some kind of whale just taking plankton and go become the shark where you're finding the stuff that's really important to you and spend your time, your precious time on the stuff that really matters and that is that nurtures something in you yes. and nurtures something around you. And that's what, you know, 99% of the time we are not able to do that. Most of us, um, I think 1% maybe we can, but I think if you're able to live in that modality of search, and searching for things that matter and that have meaning, then you're, then you don't need the TV on at 7 a.m. And then it's an yeah. intrusion. I, I absolutely agree. I, I often, uh, I, I, if, I uh, describe my, my artistic pursuits or creative pursuits as, as a, a dog with a really alert, uh, you know, sense of smell who just goes like, oh, here's something. Let's follow that. And it's not right. like a dog doesn't go like, oh, here's something and here's something else. And here's something else. A, a right. coon hound will go after one thing and run and yeah. run and run and run till he finds that very thing. And that's different than that's a different attitude than saying, let's turn on the TV and see what's there that I possibly might be interested in. Right. It's a completely different action. If you go, I'm interested in that. Let's use this tool to find, to learn everything I can about it. And of course, moving pictures can be extremely uh, uh, inspiring, just as any image can be inspiring. Yes, definitely. I think that's a um, you know the beginning of a great movie, Train Spotting, where he's giving that little uh, monologue about choose life, which is a biblical reference. But I think in addition to choosing life in general, it's choosing your life. To choose life generally, to opt to live, is to opt to live in a specific way. To make a choice, yeah. what kind of life you want and need. Um, and I think that's also just, you know, part and parcel to that is deciding 
What do you want to give to the world? If you can answer that question, I think you can help answer the question of what is your life that you choose? Definitely. But when I, I mean, in my life, when I was 11 years old, I saw the great country singer Bobby Bear on a, on a TV show in Germany. He was playing two songs, uh, one called Detroit City and one called uh, Tequila Sheila. And it was, that image inspired me to do what I do to this day. I mean, there has not been one moment where that image has not been the guiding light to what I what I want to do. And I knew it at 11 years old. Amazing. This, is, this is all I'm going to do. And that's the power of, of the subconscious mind and the power of archetypes that speak to to your subconscious. And and I'm lucky. I'm, I'm extremely lucky that I get to do this, you know, and I try to. Well, you talked about giving back. I mean, I. I just try to I try to do good music and maybe try to find some aspects in the music that 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 have been overlooked or not been focused on and maybe that's mm -hmm. a form of giving back I don't know mm -hmm. I hope yeah so what's next for you um, you just had an album out with um, Tammy Rogers is that right yes and mm -hmm. um, which is uh, I I surely will be singing I miss mm -hmm. I misspoke earlier. Um, by Mountain Fever Records, that was out this this year, so just mm -hmm. out. Um, I'm guessing you're you've already got something on the burner, if not yeah. in the works. Yeah, yeah, I've I've really felt like over this pandemic, as as counterintuitive as this may sound, that this was a good time to collaborate. So I collaborated with Tammy on this record, and we had been writing together for many years. And I've also worked on a on a record that's actually almost like two records with a great mandolin player called Mike Compton, who a lot of people know from the soundtrack to a brother where Arthur he plays all mm. over that and also from wow. the soundtrack he's he's uh he's also contributed to the soundtrack of um cold mountain and we become good friends wow. and wrote some stuff about his childhood in mississippi and his ancestors in mississippi and so we turned that into a duo into a true duo record where it's just him and me playing uh there's four songs with the band but everything else is just a duo and we're singing playing live and, and there's no editing no tuning no nothing so it's a real it, this is an album that's really focusing on old country music of the 20s, yeah. like before it even called itself country music. It was just, I don't know, some at the, the industry called it hillbilly music at the time. <laughs> but for the for the people, it was just whatever. And then I'm also, I just completed a record with a gentleman called Tim Stafford, who's a wonderful writer, and we've been writing a lot together. And he's a he's a great guitar player, so we, we always wanted to work on something together, so we did that. And I... Uh, so those things are in the can and now I'm going to maybe work at a little more of a relaxed pace for the first half of this year and focus on promoting these things and planning these things and on my teaching and, you know, just recharging the batteries a little bit too by reading. And now that it's hopefully going to be possible to, to, to travel a little more, also getting out of here a little more, seeing some other things, but yeah, I'm, I'm super excited about writing, playing, recording. It's, it never, it never gets old. Um, that's amazing. It sounds like a great approach to rhythm and cadence in, in life, which again, another thing people for lose sight of is they'll, we all want to go 120% all the time and it doesn't work. It's not good. Um, not productive. So last question, which is a question I always ask or try to always ask, which is what are you reading right now? Um, I'm reading a rereading a book called salvation on sand mountain about serpent handlers in the, in Alabama. <laughs> which is a sounds a, cool. It is a really, really good book. It was written by a, a, a New York Times journalist who studied it and was fascinated with it, and then kind of became too fascinated with it and wanted to do it himself and did it, and then realized how dangerous it was and pulled wow. back from it. 
it's a really good book. Amazing. I'm reading it for a for a, a, a graduate degree that, that I'm working on, and so I'm most of my reading at the moment is is not dictated, but um, informed by what I have to read for that. Um, so it's a bunch of stuff on on mountain religion in in Appalachia that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. A couple of books on Appalachian foodways, which ties in with that degree as well, which I, I like cooking and I like good food and I like Appalachia. It's a fascinating place to me because it ties in with the music. Um, I've been really into the novels of a Western North Carolina author called Terry Roberts, whose novels are taking place between 1865 and the early 1920s and mostly in, in Western North Carolina, which is an interesting part of the world. And... Uh, he is a native of that region, so he writes very eloquently about that. And he manages to to put historical figures into his fiction, which is always an in interesting uh, literary technique to me. And then just, you know, whatever comes, there's there's books everywhere here. I, I look around and my wife reads a lot and I read a lot. And I like to I like to keep them out and guitars out so I don't have to go to a shelf and look for something. I like to be able to sit down and open a book and read a page and then put it down and let my, you know, let that marinate a little bit and see what, what I can come up with. Amazing. Thank you. Um, where can people find you and your work? Where's the best place to go? Well, it's my, it's my website, tomutes.com. It's T-H-O-M-M-J-U-T-Z.com. And okay. uh, that's where all my records are and, and all that kind of stuff. But man, this was such a good conversation. Thank you so much. That's Thank you, Tom. No, it was really great. I really enjoyed it. And yeah, you, you, you inspired me to think a lot of new thoughts that I hadn't thought about. Oh, that's like amazing. That, or express them in a, in a different way. Um, so maybe you can send me an email where I can find your work. I will absolutely do so. Um, let's be in touch and um, I'll be listening to more and more of the music that you produce, including what's already been out. And um, again, thank you. This is, I think really for a lot of people, this is, these are the questions that they're asking or they, that they need to be asking. And I think we've even offered a couple answers if we can humbly say so. So Tom Mutes, thank you so much for joining me on the Burning Castle. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great, have a great day. Thank you for joining me today on the Burning Castle podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Ashley Rinsberg, A-S-H-L-E-Y-R-I-N-D-S-B-E-R-G. And follow the podcast on Twitter at Burning Castle and on Instagram at Burning Castle Podcast. Till next time.